Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Vetfolio Boys. And I hope you're excited because in this episode, sponsored by DECRA, I was joined by Dr. Craig Clifford to discuss a new medication that could offer another option in the management of canine lymphoma. Have you been there? I've been there. A dog comes in for a check lump and you find lots of lumps that seem to be giant lymph nodes and mean you're in for a tough discussion with that owner. And these days, that discussion can be even tougher. Not only is there the to refer or not to refer discussion, sometimes there's a substantial weight associated with getting that patient into an oncologist, which doesn't always bode well in cases of lymphoma. And that can lead to the to prednisone or not to prednisone conversation. Sometimes the stars align for our patient, but when that doesn't happen, it can leave us veterinarians, pets, and pet owners with some really tough decisions. What if there were another option, a medication that could serve as a bridge between primary care and referral to an oncologist and make some of those conversations surrounding canine lymphoma treatment a little bit easier? Joining me is Dr. Craig Clifford to discuss Laverdia, which it seems could be exactly that. Let me introduce him and we'll go ahead and jump in. Dr. Craig Clifford is a graduate of Mississippi State University College of Veterinary Medicine and received a master's degree in animal science and virology from the University of Delaware. After completing an internship and medical oncology residency at the University of Pennsylvania, he became a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine in Oncology in 2003. He's a medical oncologist and director of clinical studies at Blue Pearl Malvern in Pennsylvania. He's active in clinical research within a referral setting and serves as an advisory board member with both industry and nonprofit foundation. He's a renowned oncologist who's authored and co-authored over 70 papers and book chapters. He's a frequent lecturer at major veterinary meetings in the U.S. and abroad. Dr. Clifford is a member of the VCA Pet Cancer Care Alliance Committee and has served on the VCS Executive Board, ACVIM Exam Rating Committee, Residency Training and Credentials Committee, Oncology Pathology Working Group, Co-Chair of the Standards of Excellence in Residency Education Task Force and an examiner for the Australian Scientist Oncology Specialty Exam. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. I'm joined by Dr. Craig Clifford, and we're going to talk about canine lymphoma, but more specifically, um, kind of a new and exciting option we have for our patients with lymphoma. So Dr. Clifford, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, and I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about this really cool topic. Um, but before we jump into that, let's kind of go back to the basics and talk about the clinical presentation for canine lymphoma. I know for me, I think of these dogs that come in with golf ball sized lymph nodes, you know, the owner found a lump, so to speak. Um, but what are some of the other presentations that we should make sure that we don't forget? Sure. So to take a step back, you know, lymphoma without question for me as a medical oncologist is probably the most common cancer that I see. And it likely represents for most oncologists about 20% of our caseload. So that gives you an idea of how, how common this is. Clearly it is a cancer of purebreds, but we do see it in mixed breeds and it's classified as a round cell tumor, which is a cancer of the immune system. 
And you were very astute in that the most common presentation is what we call multicentric lymphoma. And that's the dog that comes in with peripheral lymphadenopathy. And for the primary care, you know, that's the one that's on their schedule coming in for a lump. And, you know, they feel the lump, they realize right away, lumps the lymph node, and they're able to aspirate it because the most common form of lymphoma is called large cell lymphoma. So it's large lymphocytes, which generally we don't see present within a node. You know, 95% of the node nearby is all small lymphocytes. So if we aspirate a node and it's just chock full of large lymphocytes, that's going to be lymphoma. So it's generally a pretty easy diagnosis that way. The question you alluded to was some of the other ways that they can present. And some of the other forms we described are going to be gastrointestinal, which clearly we're not going to find by accident. That's going to be the dog that's coming in for vomiting, diarrhea, losing weight, and not eating well followed by potential mediastinal. And mediastinal may have a, a couple of different presentations, which could be coughing or difficulty breathing if they've developed the pleural effusion. Or interestingly enough, it could be that they're coming in for drinking and peeing a lot because nearly 40% will have hypercalcemia. And as the calcium goes up, it triggers the body to drink more and pee more. Primary care does the workup, sees the calcium is high, and then does a a high calcium workup, which would include chest x-rays. The other forms certainly are extranodal, which means it could be anywhere. Those are the oddballs, the kidney, the liver, et cetera. But we also have a cutaneous form. We call it epitheliotropic lymphoma, or sometimes we just say cutaneous lymphoma. The older papers use a, an archaic term called mycosis fungoides, which we steal from the physician-based medicine. And that's a hard one because sometimes it can literally just look like flaky skin. Other times it may look like a hotspot or it can be nodules under the skin and they don't necessarily have enlarged lymph nodes. So that one, it really takes several months in most cases until someone biopsies the skin because they often get treated with prednisone and an antibiotic, which makes sense because most skin infections, that's what you're going to do. And they get better, but then it gets worse. And finally, a couple months down the road, we biopsy and get our answer. So those are the all the different types of presentations that we can see that are most common, but clearly the multicentric is number one, as you alluded to. Gotcha. And I will be honest and bear my soul, as I often do on this podcast, and say that I had borderline forgotten about some of those other presentations. So I really appreciate the refresher. No worries at all. <laughs> so... Like you said, this is kind of an easy diagnosis in some regards uh, because we can take a sample from the lymph node in a lot of cases and, and see what we're dealing with. But I know that oftentimes once we get that diagnosis of lymphoma, that we're wanting more information. Can you tell us about some of the other types of samples we should be thinking about when we're getting to a definitive or maybe after getting to the definitive diagnosis of, okay, it's lymphoma, where do we go next in terms of diagnostics? Yeah, I mean, the next step then becomes kind of what we call our staging. And, you know, all the oncologists certainly differ in regards to staging. And I think part of it is how long you've been out. You know, as you know, when you first came out, you know, you probably ran a lot of tests because we didn't have a lot of knowledge, Ben, and you felt better having all of the tests run. And as you've gotten older and more experienced, regardless of your field, you know, you kind of learn what you need and what you don't need. So some of the staging that would be done is certainly routine blood work, a CBC and a chemistry. CBC, what we're looking for is are there blasts in the blood or evidence to suggest that it might be in the bone marrow. So do we see any myelosuppression occurring to make us think it may be in the bone marrow? 
a chemistry panel looking at liver values and certainly overall health, but also looking at their calcium level, as we know that's a negative indicator. In some cases, we may do chest x-rays if they're having issues, and in some cases, an ultrasound. Those are two tests I don't always do in cases, but I at least talk to the owner about it. The big one that I think is important to me for the primary care and all of my lectures when I talk on lymphoma, I try to hammer this home, is the idea of doing phenotyping. So for large cell lymphoma, which again, we said is probably about 75 to 80%, we know that we break it into two subgroups, B cell and T cell. When I talk to owners, B isn't better, T isn't tougher to treat. And this test is actually important for two reasons. The first is going to be for prognosis. B is going to do better generally, and T is going to be more challenging to treat generally. The second is it's important in how we treat them. Probably the vast majority of oncologists now have learned that we only get so far with the standard protocol. And now we've started to make modifications. We've learned some drugs do better for B and some do better for T. So the vast majority of oncologists now really will tailor the protocol for that. And we're hopefully not too far off from our first monoclonal antibodies, such as on the physician side, rituxan, which is a monoclonal that binds to B cell. So clearly we need to know it's a B cell if we're going to use such a product in the future. Phenotyping can be done a number of ways. It can be done through biopsying. The challenge with that is that biopsy takes time, the morbidity associated with it, and then to do immunohistochemistry on the sample, we lose a couple of weeks. So most oncologists, their go-to test is flow cytometry, which looks at live cells. So basically it does make it difficult to do it over the weekend because we'd have to save a sample, but it's simply aspirating, putting it into saline, some of the labs will like you to add the patient's serum in to keep the cells viable. And then we simply send it off. All of the labs run it and they usually either send it to Davis or Colorado or NC State or Michigan State as some of the big labs that run them. And that is very important. And I usually will talk to my primary carers that I would love for them to be able to do the phenotyping. The easier one that can be done is immunocytochemistry, which is using those same monoclonal antibodies that we attach to live cells or to fixed tissue for immunohistochemistry or flow, but applying it to a cytology sample. And I think this is the easiest one. And, and we use a group called Eastern Vet Path. And what I love about them is they simply send you the kit already done and it's already pre-mailed labels on it. So you basically save some slides and do it. So when I talk to my primary cares and they have a case coming in that they think might be lymphoma, what I recommend is getting to the habit of creating an SOP that if we have a dog we think might be lymphoma, yes, we're going to aspirate and send X slides off for cytology, but we're gonna save another six to eight slides in case the owner wants to move forward and we want to do phenotyping. And if that's the case, then those unstained slides can simply be sent off for immunocytochemistry. So it's an easy thing to get into the habit of. And for me as an oncologist, you know, if I have that information, it gives me one more thing I can talk to the owner about moving forward. And I view these tests, phenotyping tests as a veterinary test, not a specialist test. And if you have an oncologist that is saying, no, we should be the ones running them, I strongly disagree. I think that it is a veterinary test and my primary cares in my area, the vast majority will go ahead in a case they know they're gonna refer and go ahead and run the test.
And that way I have the information and I'm totally fine with that. And I think uh, it helps set up a better rapport with myself and the primary cares than trying to make it that it's a specialist test, which I strongly disagree with. So that's how we go up working up these guys. And you just answered so many questions for me there. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, no, that was actually because, you know, you get these diagnoses back and you're like, okay, it's lymphoma and there's these phenotyping tests, but uh, you know, they they come with a price tag as well. And so you have to talk to the owner about that and trying to answer questions about how important it is to phenotype and, you know, what that means for their pet. And I, I feel like your answer there just gave us a really thorough way to, to write these SOPs, which are really important. So we don't have those questions in the moment. And then how to explain those to owners. One thing you did touch on was some of these these phenotyping diagnostics and, and workup tests taking a little while to come back. And that's something I always struggle with is I see a dog with, you know, golf ball size lymph nodes and yes, it looks like it's lymphoma. And now we're talking about sending off additional tests. What kind of time do I have with that patient? I always am kind of on edge of like, Oh, I, you know, I don't want you to get worse. Should I start you on prednisone? But if I start you on prednisone, I'm going to mess up the oncologist. And, you know, how, how should we approach that in terms of time frame? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And it's a tough one because I think part of it is you need to have communication. If this is going to be a case, it's going to be referred with the oncologist, because we all know, just like many primary care doctors are, are not even accepting new cases anymore because they're so overwhelmed most oncologists have a multi-week waiting list. And you're right. The challenge you have is that, you know, we break lymphoma down into a stage of disease, but also what's called the substage. And substage A is the happy, healthy, goofy, you know, Labrador coming in with big nodes, but has no clue it has cancer. And substage B is a sick dog. And we know that substage is one of the most powerful indicators as to how they're going to do. So if you find out when the owner called up to make an appointment or you called in and the oncologist can't see them for four weeks, that's a tough one because ideally the concern is, are we going to go from a substage A to a substage B and affect prognosis? So is there something we can do as an intermediary, as a bridge? Because again, yes, the oncologist can try to get it in through emergency, but sometimes that's not possible. You know, if every veterinarian's calling with something they want to come through emergency, then you're going to have a flooded emergency service, as you can imagine. Yeah. So we need to be able to offer something. And the challenge with steroids, as you alluded to, is that we know that steroids, when they're used by themselves, definitely kill lymphoma and makes the dogs feel better. No doubt about that. But the downside is it can set up resistance. And you know, there was an older study from the 90s, Dr. Bergman, that looked at this and dogs that were on it greater than two weeks certainly did worse. Now, it doesn't mean two weeks is the magic mark. You're building up resistance from day one of being on it. So we really try to reserve the prednisone for a dog that's sick, meaning if they're sick and I can't get them in for a week, get them on prednisone and we'll deal with it. You know, we need to make them better or else the owner may decide to not treat. So that's where certainly the new product that we're going to talk about, Lavertia uh, CA1, is fits this bridge that I look at. Yes, and I'm I'm glad that you brought that up um, because you were talking also with these diagnostics being veterinary tests and not specialist tests. I was also thinking about that in terms of time, like if you know if it takes a long time to get a patient in, and then you have to go through all the phenotyping tests. Good to have that information ahead of time. 
And I can certainly relate to what you're saying about these long waiting lists. I think we're down to like one medical oncologist in my area. And so obviously she can't see anything and everything and work 24 hours a day. So yes, let's talk about what we can do to bridge that time gap of keeping our patients in, you know, from progressing in substage so that we can get them into the oncologist and give them the best chance possible. Yeah, so that's where, you know, the product Lavertia, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, Lavertia is in a, a new class of drug. It's not a chemotherapeutic. The class of drug is called a sign inhibitor, which stands for selective inhibition of nuclear export. And it involves a little biology, so bear with me. But if we, you know, think of the cell with the nucleus being the brain, within that we have our genes. And when they become damaged or abnormal, we have proteins that are present within the nucleus that are called tumor suppressor proteins. And their whole goal is they essentially tell the cell, you have to fix yourself, fix those abnormalities and stop growing. Or if you can't fix yourself, you need to go down a death pathway. Within the nucleus, there is an import-export system where proteins shuttle back and forth. So you can imagine one of the things that cancer has been able to do is to take that system and use it to its own advantage. So it increases up the shuttling system for exporting out these tumor suppressor proteins and taking them out of the nucleus and putting them into the cytoplasm. Once they're in the cytoplasm, they can't go back in. And if they're in the cytoplasm, they can't tell the cell, stop growing. And if you can't fix yourself, you need to go down a death pathway. So it allows the cancer cell to continue to grow unabated. So if it upregulates this system, it's taking those out of commission so they can't work. This drug blocks that from happening. So these tumor suppressor proteins will now build up again within the nucleus and exert their influence on it. The drug itself is an oral medication, which certainly makes it incredibly convenient because it's something that can be done at home. Because it's not chemotherapy, the vast majority of states, you do not need to have any specialized equipment for it. And it's given twice a week with three days off in between, which is also incredibly convenient for the owner. The data for it certainly suggests that the response rate is somewhere between the mid 30s to 70%, depending upon if it's B or T and depending upon if the patient has seen therapy before. And to me, what's also interesting with the data was that there was a subset of cases that were actually able to stay on this product for several months. So to take you a step back, when we do clinical trials in veterinary oncology for lymphoma, we have very defined criteria, meaning the case comes in each week, and then we measure it with calipers. And if everything disappears, well, that's a complete response. That's an easy one. If it shrinks by greater than 30%, that's called a partial response. If it grows greater than 20%, that's progressive disease. And anything in between those two is considered stable. And what was interesting in the, the phase two trial that was done, which was only dogs with lymphoma, they found that several of the dogs, and it was close to 20%, were deemed progressed, meaning their lymph nodes were bigger than 30%, but the owners felt their dog's quality of life was excellent and they were doing well. So they asked, can I stay on it? And they were allowed to stay on it in a more compassionate use. And many of these cases were on it for several months. When we look at the overall duration of response, it's a little over two months for the average dog, but there is this subset that actually did quite well on it. Now, clearly our data and our studies down the road are going to help tease out who those patients are. But to me, I view this product in a dog that feels well. 
I view it two ways. One is I think it's a great conversation piece between the primary care and the specialist, which is what we need. The more we talk to one another, the less issues there are. And knowing that they can't get in right away, this could theoretically be used as a bridge because unlike prednisone, the data does not show or it does not appear that this induces that resistance that we see. So if I have a dog that's feeling well and they can't get in for a while, I would have no issue myself personally having a primary care start the product. That is so exciting to have an option like that because it really sometimes puts you between a rock and a hard place as the primary medical contact for that owner and that patient trying to, you know, walk walk that tightrope of, I don't want to start you on prednisone because like you said, we're building up resistance, but I can't get you in and I don't want you to progress. So what's going to happen here and trying to help them through that to have an additional option is so exciting. Agreed. And, and you know, to me where I am very excited with this product. And just for a full disclosure, I am an advisory board for a member for Anavive, who was initially um, the ones who had the product. Um, currently now it's being distributed through DECRA. Um, so please at least keep that part in mind. My apologies for not mentioning that earlier. But the other place where I see this as one as the, the conversation, but where I also see this is, you know, Anavive had some internal data that nearly 80% of lymphomas are, are not treated. And, you know, I've been blessed to lecture with one of my primary care doctors, Kim Gallagher. And I say this at all my lectures, so it may be something you've heard before, but, you know, one of the things she said really stuck with me in that she was so tired of, for owners who weren't going to do anything that all she could offer them was prednisone. So to be able to have something she could offer them that based upon the data was safe and certainly had a reasonable expectation of working, which is why it's conditional approval was wonderful for her. It was opened up because she doesn't want to do chemo to practice, doesn't have a fume hood, and she didn't need to with this product. So again, if we think about 80% truly are untreated, you know, I view this probably being more of a, a primary care product because I think they'll be the ones who are probably going to be using this more, at least initially with this product. And that's great because that means it's expanding access and it's an unmet need. So to me, more cases are going to be treated and it may be some of those do well and the owner changes their mind and maybe they decide they want to do the whole thing and move down the road. So if we get more cases treated, you know, to me, that's a huge benefit. And that's where I see this product fitting in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense of owners not necessarily having to make any sort of snap decisions of like, well, it's either prednisone or referral. And, you know, you kind of got to decide um, to give them that breathing room to really digest it and make a decision. Agreed. hundred percent. So we've talked a lot about healthy patients and using this as a bridge to get them in uh, so they don't progress in substage and become sick and affect prognosis. What if we're dealing with a patient who's already sick? So if we have a dog that is ill, and that's a, a great point, I would be a little leery about starting it only because of the fact that although it's deemed very safe, gastrointestinal signs certainly were something we can see with it, with the most common usually either being um, nausea or vomiting or loss of appetite, and then subsequent weight loss. So if they're already not feeling well in a case like that, clearly if it's going to be referred, I would still talk with the primary care. I mean, talk with the specialist and the primary care, have them work on it together, but potentially that might be a case we want to start pred and then try to get them in as quick as we can. If it's going to be a dog that the owner is not going to refer and it's not feeling well, then again, I would probably start them on pred to get them feeling better. 
And once you see a change that they've kind of turned the corner, then, especially if they're not going to treat, I would add in Laverdia as a, a potential therapeutic in combination with the steroid. This is bringing us back around to a point that I feel like I'm hearing over and over again lately that is something we've always known, but I, I don't know, just maybe it's circumstances that I feel like I've heard it reemphasized over and over recently of treating our patient, letting them kind of tell us what they need. So I like what you said there of putting them on prednisone until you see them turn the corner, until you see them tell you that they're feeling better, and then use this to help buy them some additional additional time and additional options. Yep, without question. So you told us a little bit earlier about um, the tumor suppressor suppressor cells and, and how this drug works, but can you expand on that a little bit? Um, sure. So again, the, the thought process is these tumor suppressor proteins are present within the nucleus, and when a cell is damaged, basically tells the cell that it's no longer able to grow and has to essentially try to fix itself. And if that's not possible, it needs to go down what's called a death pathway, which is called apoptosis. So we know that cancer will upregulate the export system of these tumor suppressor proteins, which is kind of fascinating to think about. It's Darwin at its best in that by doing this, it shuttles them out of the nucleus. So they're sitting in the cytoplasm where they can no longer exert their effect on it. So by blocking this mechanism, now we have them present and that's where we can then send the cells down a death pathway. So the interesting thing with this product is that, you know, certainly there is a good number of cases that respond, but the other thing that they had noted within their phase two study, which is once you've gotten your dose from the phase one, you apply it to dogs that have cancer X. And in this case, it was lymphoma. They did see that there is a subset of dogs that actually stayed stable. And we don't tend to think of that with lymphoma. You either grow uncontrollably or you respond. You know, we don't really have much of a sweet spot where we have stable disease. That's what we think about for solid tumors like mast cell or soft tissue sarcomas. But there is a subset that can stay stable with this. So I think that that is something interesting to consider that is quite different. Uh, The other things with this product that we need to keep in mind, as I had mentioned, is that there is a subset of dogs that may slowly progress. Now, again, at least initially, I recommend that the primary care has them come back on a weekly basis for maybe a weight check. How are we doing and measure the nodes? So that's something where primary care should get into the habit of having calipers to measure the lymph nodes and then compare them from week to week. Now, if we see they double or triple, clearly it means the drug's not working and I would come off of it. But if we don't see much of a change and the quality of life is good, then without question, I would stay on it. The data also suggests it's a very safe product and there is no real target organ. So we tend to think of drugs that I use like doxorubicin that can hurt the heart or tenovia that can theoretically affect the lungs in a very small percentage of patients. This doesn't have a target organ. So in regards to monitoring, there is no set amount of blood work that needs to be done. But again, I think for a primary care, when you first start using this product, I would get into the habit of running routine blood work and at least having them back weekly to be assessed. Once you've gotten familiar with it and you feel comfortable with it, then I tend to send them home with a month at a time. And again, the convenient thing is it's being done by the owner at home. It's given by them on a twice a week basis with three days off in between. So that's pretty hard to mess up. The other thing that our group does as an extra layer of protection is the three pill sizes have different colors. 
So we will tell them the milligram, but then in parentheses, we also have gotten in the habit of putting the color. And I think by doing both, it makes it very unlikely that the owner will have an issue in administering the medication. So that's kind of how our group has gone about it. And I think we're all very excited. Currently, you can check on the AVMA website or through DECRA for the pivotal clinical trial that is ongoing. There are a number of sites that are involved that are primary care and specialty sites. And it is a fully funded trial. This is what's going to get them from conditional approval, which means it's safe with a reasonable expectation of working and we can sell it to full approval. We're not used to conditional approval in veterinary medicine because previously most companies like the non-steroidals or vaccine companies, you know, they went full through and would not sell a product until there was full approval, especially with the non-steroidals. But with conditional approval, you can sell the product. So the beauty of that is we get it in our hands earlier, which is wonderful. We can use it. But the downside is we don't have a ton of data behind it. So which scenario is best to use it? Where are we going to see potential interactions or things? That's what we're going to learn either from the pivotal trial or what we call investigator-driven trials, which are done after the full approval. So many options and possibilities out there. It's really exciting. Very much so. Um, we're very excited in the oncology field as to where things are going. And I'm also just excited that we have a product like this that is going to open up communication with primary care and the specialty and also for the primary care to be able to have something they can use instead of just prednisone. Exactly. Oh, that just sounds like music to my ears. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so thinking about having this additional option, let's touch on communicating with owners about this. I know you mentioned, you know, some of these dogs can stay stable. Um, they can go for months in some cases on this drug. How should we communicate with owners and what should our expectations be when we're administering this medication? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in, in talking with owners, we have to let them understand that again, conditional approval means reasonable expectation of efficacy. It's not coming out there and saying, here's exactly how it's going to do, you know, some of that we're still going to learn. So they have to understand that again, we're getting it early, but we don't have a lot of data behind it. The other thing with the owners is making sure we have good contact with them, meaning like if the dog's not eating or the first sign of anything, they should call us because we may not want to give the next dose. We may want to give them some time off, or maybe it's just not a great patient. Um, we need to make sure that the owner, at least initially, is going to be able to come in weekly because what we don't want is they go home with four weeks. We don't know what's going on and the dog's sick and there are issues with it. So I think even from the primary care side, it's going to need to be working hard with this owner with frequent phone calls, whether it's the clinician or the, the nurses, but frequent phone calls to chat with them about it. And I think from the, the doctor side, we need to understand that, you know, this is not the silver bullet that's going to cure all cancer, but it's another tool in our tool belt. And although this will be down the road, you can imagine that that mechanism of increasing the export is not going to be limited to lymphoma. You know, there are going to be many cancers that probably utilize this in order to be able to grow. So down the road, we may actually find that this is going to be a product we may use against many cancers. And certainly, at least from the oncologist perspective, it's likely going to be something that will be combining with other therapies, not necessarily using it as um, a single agent as we would in a dog where the owner isn't going to do anything else, we'll likely be combining it with other things down the road. So the future is certainly very exciting for it as to where it's going to be, but we have to be tempered in that it is not a silver bullet. 
but certainly it is something we have that we didn't before, which is new and exciting. And certainly for the primary care that only had prednisone before, this is something now in their armament that they can utilize and feel comfortable with. Could not agree more. And you've touched on a lot of this throughout our talk, but just to kind of summarize it here as we're getting towards the end, what do you see as the biggest advantages presented by having this medication in our arsenal? Well, one, I would say the fact that it's oral, I think is wonderful. The owner isn't having to come in once a week for injections, jump in the car. You know, maybe it's not a good dog that likes to go in the car and gets ill. You know, that's the last thing we want. I think that makes it easy. I think the fact that they're giving it at home and it's twice a week is incredibly convenient. The fact that there isn't a target organ that we have to worry about. So we're not having to do extra x-rays or ultrasounds or things like that. Just routine minimal blood work is really all we need to do on these. So I don't think it's a big ask for the owner as well. And, you know, the convenience of it, you can't beat that. So certainly I think that is a, another positive to this product. Just to make sure we're being thorough, you mentioned that there could be some GI side effects, but that, you know, one of the advantages was that there is no target organ here, which makes the side effect profile a lot more minimal. But what should we uh, make sure that we're on the lookout for and communicating with owners as far as side effects or maybe even contraindications? Don't use it in these patients. Again, just kind of to summarize here at the end. Yeah. I mean, I would say certainly gastrointestinal is going to be most common. So we really need to put it into the owner's head that if we don't eat or we seem nauseous or we vomit or anything like that, we need to know. They need to let us know right away because we may want to prescribe anti-nausea. We may want to prescribe an appetite stimulant, et cetera, to help that patient. And if there is an issue, we may want to take some more time off and not just jump and give the next dose. So I think certainly it, it is going to involve for the primary care a lot more owner discussion and owner follow-up than they would normally do with many of their other cases. But the fact that we can kind of stop and start, I think is maybe another advantage of this medication. Without question, if we need to, you know, the way I view it is it's not the individual dose that makes or breaks us, it's the sum. Sure. So as long as we're doing our best to try to get them in and the dog is getting it within its time frame, I think that's totally feasible. So again, twice a week is pretty easy for most owners. And again, if the primary care gets in the habit of not only writing down the milligram, but also the color, I think it makes it less likely we'll have any owner mess ups in regards to administration. Absolutely. And what kind of success rate should we be expecting with Liverdia? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the literature from the phase two trial, and again, it was under 60 dogs. So we're not talking about thousands of dogs that have been treated, but the response rate varies from in the thirties to the seventies, depending upon if it was B or T, the T response rate seems to be higher approaching around 70%. And it also matters if the patient had seen chemo before, et cetera. So, you know, there are, are many ways we'll probably utilize this product. I think Oncologist and primary care may go about it slightly differently, but I think, again, the biggest point to me is I think that it's an unmet need and we're expanding access. And that's something we weren't able to do before that we do have available with this. We are absolutely on the same page with that. From a primary care standpoint, I'm hearing you talk and getting really excited that I don't just have prednisone anymore. And, you know, I can give owners time to think and digest information and make decisions for their pet without saying, you know, it's, it's gotta be now or never, we got to figure out what to do. So this is 
just opening up a whole new world for primary care, for oncologists, and like you said, most importantly, for the communication between both. Without question. That's where I, I foresee that because as we all know, we're all so busy right now and COVID has only made that worse, that it's been harder to communicate. So I think anything we can have that can kind of bridge some of the gaps that exist between specialty and primary care is wonderful. And that's definitely where I see this product falling in. I love that. I love that. Well, Dr. Clifford, this has been such an exciting talk about a new and, and innovative product and topic. So thank you so much for joining me. Any final thoughts you want to share with everybody? Uh, I think just that we're excited to see where this goes. Uh, again, keep in mind, if you have cases, there is a pivotal trial that is ongoing throughout the country. So you can find it through the AVMA database, through Anavive or through DECRA to see if you have um, a site that may be near you. And if so, that's another opportunity for an owner maybe that doesn't have the financial means to be able to move forward. The idea of potentially being on a clinical trial. So keep that in mind. All right, guys, I hope you're excited like I'm excited. This could really open up some opportunities in the field of cancer care for our patients. Dr. Clifford, thank you so much for joining me for this talk, and thank you to DACRA for making it possible. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com, you can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm -hmm.